Ah, Raja, Hi. impeccable timing. Nice to speak to you. How are you, sir? Good evening, Stephen. I'm well, thank you. Nice to speak to you. Um, I was just to say before you join me, you're actually not far from my neck of the woods. I'm in the Greater Manchester region. I believe you're. Are you are you in Oldham? I know that's a. No, I, I'm, I'm these days just living outside in a place called Mosley. I, I I came back here. I'm between where my mother was. Yeah, she passed recently, and my daughter okay. was just in one of the Saddleworth villages, but I can't afford to live that way, mate. So mostly it was for me. <laughs> it's nice up Saddleworth, isn't it? Lots of hills. Yeah. Yeah. I, I lived in High Crompton for a little while, which isn't oh, quite so old. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that's cool. Well, nice to speak to you anyway. And it's, it's an important topic, grooming guns, and it's one that I've I've kept a keen eye on uh, over the years. Uh, um, it's been quite big in the north of the country, but I don't think there's a part of the country it hasn't touched at this point. Uh, so maybe you could just let our viewers, uh, listeners know uh, what exactly is it you do? What's your background? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Stephen. I, 25 years public service, give or take, mate. Uh, in, in the end, I ended up working for various secretaries of state, advising them, prime ministers, all of that. I'm a northern lad, grew up in Oldham, and looked around, and I didn't like the way in which the race equality narrative was going in the mid-90s, early 90s. It was very much about... Uh, dividing communities and and whatnot. So I, I struggled with that, wrote some policy papers, 97, also uh, objected four years before 9-11 to the growth of what we now know as Al-Qaeda and Islamist extremism, got uh, the attention of a man called David Blunkett, who was education minister and then became home secretary, took me under his wing, uh, did well by me, I did well by him, if I'm honest with you. He, he taught me a lot and a whole host of that first wave of, of government ministers and uh, what I brought was lived experience. You know, I can, I, I can be, I'm academically all right and all the rest of that, but I had lived experience of the, of the issues I was talking about. And I'm also a product of the multicultural society that I think we all once aspired that people like me would be. And uh, made my way through 20, 25 years, worked across the world. Uh, some projects went well, some projects didn't go well. In the end, I was writing counter-terrorism strategy, counter-extremism strategy. I wrote Manchester Council's uh, counter-extremism strategy. Fell out with the Office for Security and Counter-Terrorism, one of my last projects. We, as a nation, were encouraging the Libyan lads to go overseas and fight with the Al-Nusra Front. I objected to it. Uh, Theresa uh, was the Home Secretary at the time. And uh, her, her team and I disagreed. Off I went, and that was the end of my my career that way, really, mate. And then a few years afterwards, of course, the arena bombing happened, and we all know what took place there. Came back in the end, mate, to uh, look after my mother five years ago. Uh, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer. We buried her in Chadderton Cemetery a few months ago. And I had a baby daughter who I wanted to make sure she knew who her father was. So that's what brought me back, mate. Came back, and within... Within weeks, right, one of my friends' wives got in touch with me. I'm, I'm Bangladeshi, I'm a Muslim. Uh, grew up in Westwood, those of you who know old and well, Westwood and Coldust, uh, that's where I was I was raised. Got in touch with me. There's a big central mosque next to the Tesco's. And she was really, really concerned because the chairman of the central mosque was, according to her, a convicted sex offender. And naturally, she was worried for her children. And no one in the community had the, had the nerve, shall I say, to speak out against these guys because they are powerful people. I didn't believe her at first, Stephen, if I'm honest with you. I got in touch with the local authority designated officer, the Lado, as they're known, used the experience I have in, in working in and around local government 
to try and make sense of what was going on. They went and called on me very quiet, quickly. Got a phone call from a police officer friend of mine who said, the senior police officer is trying to get hold of you and you're difficult to trace. So I said, I'm not difficult to trace this. Someone give me a call, I'll come and have a coffee with you. Straightforward. <laughs> when I had a coffee with him and it turned out I was right. The chairman of the Central Mosque was a convicted sex offender. The council knew about it. The police knew about it. No one wanted to do anything about it. And I started digging. And the reason why was because the mosque was involved uh, before I came along, a headline in the Telegraph, I think, involved in uh, providing harvesting postal votes for the M- what became the MP, was at the time the leader of the council, a man called Jim McMahon. You'll see the article in the Telegraph. It's not you know, long before I came along. And that the chairman of the central mosque had been a previous candidate of the Labour Party in the local elections. The mosque was all run by local, uh, Labour Party members. One thing led to another. It then transpired that the mosque itself was uh, secretly funded by the council, something that's actually unlawful in this country. Uh, they'd loaned the mosque some money, something like 80 or 90,000 pounds 20 years ago. I'd never, never asked for it back is, is what, the, what came out, Stephen. So we got rid of him. We, you know, we campaigned, I publicly campaigned, Stephen. I got rid of him, took a lot of, uh, you know, people wanted to beat me up, kill me. How dare I do this? Uh, but, mate, I've got a kid. I've got a daughter. It's my mate's children who go to that mosque. And I wanted to make sure that this man was nowhere near these children. Uh, we got rid of him. And randomly, an ex-counsellor got in touch with me, a man called Warren Bates. Ex-counsellor got in touch with me. Never heard of him before. Uh, 86, 87 years old he now is. And I remember going to see him. I went to see him the day I dropped my daughter off for her first day in reception, mate, 10 to 9. I'm dropping her off, you know, this child crying, not letting your, uh, in, not letting your leg go because it's her first day in school. Dropped her off, drove to a part of, uh, I think, the people of Failsworth don't like to be called Oldham, but, you know, a place called Failsworth, which is a, me- a bit of metropolitan borough of Oldham. Angela Rayner's backyard, yeah, is, right. is what it is. And... He put in front of me, this this man, a dossier of evidence. That dossier of evidence showed that the council, the BBC, the BBC, the council, the police had all worked together to keep news of grooming gangs hidden from members of the public. I, I looked at it. The evidence was compelling. I went and asked my own questions, uh, cross-reference stuff, and I published something. And my... I ask myself every day, Stephen, should I have done that? Because what what I published led to eventually Andy Burnham had been forced to launch his assurance review into the cover-up at Oldham. They claim it wasn't a cover-up, but confirmed every allegation I made. These allegations included that Shabir Ahmed, the ringleader of the Rochdale Grooming Gang, the guy they called Daddy, worked for the council, worked for the council for 18 years, had access to children throughout that time, uh, was a senior member of the Labour Party in the town, and the police and the council covered up for him on missed opportunities, whatever the terminology you want to use, mate, on at least nine separate occasions. And he, if he had been apprehended at the beginning, the Rochdale grooming gang, the, the grooming of children in Haywood, would never have took place in those takeaways. So these guys had been at it for a long time, and these guys had been at it for a long time, with the, I use the term reluctantly, but uh, the word I use is intentional blessing, is what I'd say. The blessing of those who control the town. That is, I mean, there's a lot to go on there. And yeah, there's a, I mean, 
I ask suppose me what you want, mate. I always say to people, ask me what you want. You see, I've got no scripts, none of that. I've been at this for for five years. They've tried to put me in prison, lock me up, all of that, mate, and they've failed so far because I am what I am. And uh, ask me what you want, and I'll do my best to answer. Well, that kind of ties into what I'm going to ask. So something I've observed over the years is whenever I broach this topic, for instance, or or I point out the fact that the chief victims of these mostly Asian grooming gangs are young, vulnerable, underaged white girls. That just seems to be the truth of the matter. And then I'm obviously labelled a, a racist because I'm white, bringing up this point. So I sometimes look for dissidents within the you know the Muslim community, which I would class you as, because I think, well, surely the smears that I get can't be directed at these people. That when I look at the kind of reaction people like you get, it's a million times worse. So I mean, how how do you how do you kind of deal with that? Because you've got on one side perhaps there's an element of the still racist far right in in the in the uk who would who would make judgments about you based on your skin color and then you have perhaps communities that you're a part of which would shun you and try to silence you i mean is it not too much to really take on given all the variables mate i every day every day i wake up and i ask myself why why i did this yeah why i spoke out and i i look at myself in the mirror and i say you know, my I have a daughter. It's as simple as that, mate. I have a daughter, a mixed race daughter, and I'm like thinking, what would my daughter think of a father if if he didn't stand up for what was right? Now, I've been called a racist. I've been called a far right activist. If you look at, is it Hansard, the parliamentary stuff? You know where everything's recorded. Right? Mm. Former government advisor. Uh, you'll find the last record of my name there by a man called, by the local MP Jim McMahon, day after Andy Burnham's assurance review was published. Well, we forced the truth out of a mate that, you know, even though the terms of reference were, were hamstrung, even though Maggie Oliver last week made reference to it as a cover up, you know, she said the truth, you know, the Oldham review team were prevented from going, getting to the truth. Despite that, everything I released was confirmed to be accurate. The MP for the town, the Labour Party MP for the town, who is Shakia Steinman's shadow minister, mate, it was the shadow minister for, uh, for environment, then got sacked or removed and he's now back in for local government. He stood up in Parliament, called uh, an adjournment debate, what's known as an adjournment debate. Him and Debbie Abrahams, who's the other MP for Oldham, uh, made reference to me as a far-right racist, uh, far-right activist and a racist. Mate, so you, so we're very clear. My public service includes an MBE when I was 30 years old for fighting racism, fighting extremism. It's just a label to silence critics, it, really. It, is, it makes no difference, mate. They sent hate. Is it Hope Not Hate, that organisation? I, I yeah. dug it up and I found out it was, you know, very closely linked to the Labour Party. They named me in the top 10 or top 20 racist people in the country. That is insane. I mean, this. I mean, I'd like to keep on this issue of race, if you don't mind, because for my absolutely, absolutely. And my... So we're clear. So we're clear at the beginning, because I think it's vital I, I make this clear at the beginning. These are racially motivated crimes. Yeah. This meets the clear criteria that MacPherson sets out that many of us fought for after the death of Stephen Lawrence in terms of how, how we record racially motivated crimes. And this these crimes against these children fit every criteria of what would be constituted as a racially motivated crime. Yet we never hear of a politician, a police officer or anyone in the mainstream media referring to these as racially motivated crimes. Yeah, and I think that that potentially ties into something that I'm going to just delve into now a little bit. And that's, I suppose, I mean, just to my observation, I was born in the mid-80s. 
and obviously racism you know this country's got a very dark history with with racism you know the skinheads things like that and it's and racism i don't think will ever be eliminated it's still around but it feels like we've made tremendous progress on that score or at least i hope we have uh, and it feels a little bit in recent years thanks to identity politics or progressive identity politics or wokeness whatever you, you want to call it we've become race obsessed again and then this kind of ties into the culture i, I mean you would be aware and you mentioned it at the start of the show the manchester arena bombing and it was revealed in the investigation after that that a security guard did actually get eyes on Salman Abedi from about 10 yeah. feet away. And he said in his own words that he felt that this individual, this suicide bomber was dodgy, but he'd made the decision not to approach him because he was scared of racially profiling. He was scared of being accused of being a racist. If he it's was wrong. Isn't it, Steve? It's outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's happening in culture right now, where there's a, a young man who perceives a potential threat and is more scared perhaps in some ways of being labeled a racist than a potential terror attack. Mate, when I was younger, and I remember all the time we'd get stopped in cars uh, in my 20s. Yeah, Asian lads would get stopped in cars. It was never an issue because we, it, when we got stopped, we, we understood two things. One, of course, there's racism. Two, of course, a lot of these guys were driving cars they shouldn't have been driving in terms of what they insured, they were the brothers' cars, all of that sort of stuff. But third, mate, you know what mattered the most was how you were treated once the interaction took place. If the police officer treated you with respect and dignity and you responded likewise, everything was always fine. And what we quickly worked out in our early 20s, mate, what we quickly worked out is we got out of the car, we were pleasant to the police officers. It never went wrong. You know, we, we were respectful in the way we were raised to be respectful to our elders, to people in positions of authority. Every time it went fine, mate. All right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems like it's, it's you know, it doesn't matter what what your background is it's very easy to talk yourself in trouble with the police i suppose yeah, of course of course i mean i've been yeah. dragged out my house three times now uh, by the police and of course the police have come to my house mate they don't want to be here they you know someone higher up has sent the you know sent the pcs and the and the kids out to come and come and arrest me they they come here quite aggressive within 30 seconds i'm very civil very polite and they're in my living room mate and i'm still civil and i'm still polite and 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 the and the discourse changes yeah well, it's, it's not a difficult, it's not something difficult to teach our young people, is, is it? You know, the world isn't fair, Stephen. We just need to accept it. The world isn't fair. We will face adversity. All of us will face adversity in some way or another because of who we are and what we are. And, and if we can react and respond in a certain way, it won't always work. But if we can react and respond in a polite manner, in a civil manner, we can, we can make it easier. Very well said. And uh, you've just made me think of something else, actually, that you, you mentioned at the start of the discussion. And that's how you put a lot of pressure on, you know, the rise of Al Qaeda in this country. And we, you know, you'll be well as an anti-extremist and your experience, you'll be well aware of the various Islamist soft jihadist uh, groups and offshoots of that. And it just recently made the news that Hizbut Tahrir has been prescribed as an illegal uh, organization uh, support for it certainly has now I just wanted to get your opinion on one whether you think that's the right way to approach this and two will it make any difference given how often these groups tend to just rebrand and reform when I worked in that world Stephen I remember his book Taya and what we always did was we we laughed at him you know those of us who worked <laughs> in actually working with Terry we worked it I worked with terrorists you know I worked with people who'd been recruited by Al-Qaeda and all of that. And the Hizbuk Tahrir lot were the nutcases that, you know, when you go to a village and someone says, take me to your idiot, 
it, more than likely they'd be a Hisbook tier member. Yeah, right. So that's that's the Hisbook tier lot now. Banning them, I just think it's gesture politics, mate. I think right. I, we're not we're not getting to the issue, and the issue is, from my point of view, why so many of our young people have identify with these with an increasingly more conservative form of Islam that their parents and their grandparents came to this country to get away from. I think there's something else going on there, mate, that we need to address. And banning his book to here isn't going to do it because those guys now will just go somewhere else. And more than likely, Stephen, they'll go somewhere else that we don't know about, or potentially somewhere else, which is more than just a bunch of idiots, you know, gathering together and, and ranting at each other. That's yeah. That's, that, that's, that's my opinion on his book to here from when I remember him 10 years ago, mate, they, they, they're not doing anything now that they weren't doing 10 years ago, are they? No, I suppose sunlight's the best disinfectant as well. We don't want to force them too underground, do we? We want to keep an eye on what they're saying. And that's how um, we saw his books here. That's how we treated them. You know, there were certain organisations we looked towards, and if, 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 if people we were worried about went in that direction, it was never a, a gateway to something else. Those who went towards his books here in the main, mate, were, you know, they just ranted for a while. And I don't mean it disrespectfully, and I don't mean to... Uh, Make you know make, in any way make it sound less dangerous than it is, but they'd gr- most of them grew out of it. Yeah, you know, and, well, and I remember white friends of mine going towards the you know the BMP or the NF or you know I'm I'm older than you, so I remember the skinheads and stuff like that. And you know, you'd meet them ten years, twenty years later, and they'd look back and thought, "I was a young lad, I was a bit stupid back then." Yeah, I can relate yeah. for sure. Not not to being a skinhead, just to being young and stupid. Yeah, young and stupid. Yeah, young and stupid. And wanting (laughs) to belong to somewhere. Wanting to belong to something. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thing. And that really obviously ties back into what you're saying about, because you'd expect in terms of sort of religious fervor or conservatism, you'd expect that to decrease by generation. And obviously the inverse of that seems true with large portions of the Muslim community, which is fascinating to me. This just to not belabor this skin issue too much, skin color issue rather, but you, you've obviously described it as a, a, a racist crime, these grooming gangs and the chief targets were vulnerable young underage girls for sure now i just want you to basically make your argument as to why you believe these were racially racially motivated because as people on the flip side of the coin just to kind of steal man their argument would say well it was essentially just a consequence of perhaps uh, a majoritively white population and the nighttime economy perhaps where you'd mostly see vulnerable white girls there so they'd say perhaps it's not really related to skin color it's just more about opportunity okay so i've, I've looked at this argument about opportunity and and it follows through that, okay, these girls were either in care and the care system didn't look after them properly, so they had opportunities to be outside of the home when they shouldn't have been outside of the home, or they were in neglected families or, you know, dysfunctional families where they operate, you know, they could go out and no one no one was, no one was parenting them the way they should have done, yeah? Yeah. And you look at that and you think, okay, but then you speak to those who were involved in the grooming if it's about opportunity, fine, but it wasn't just about opportunity. Speak to those who were involved in the grooming. You look at the testimonies, and they are consistently very clear, and also the girls are also very clear. The survivors are very clear. They, What was done to them was lit- legitimized because those who were committing the crimes against them, and in, in the case of Rochdale, mate, pre- predominantly an old and predominantly Pakistani 
occasionally Bangladeshi, almost exclusively Muslim, is how I describe them. They legitimize what they were doing through uh, a belief that these girls were unclean and been, you know, less than. And they quantified that through culture of promiscuity is what they describe, you know, and, and whatnot. And also some of them through the prism of, of religion. And the victims also said the perpetrators consistently referred to them by their ethnicity, dirty, white. Sorry, man, I'm not going to swear, but you understand a whole host of other identities yeah. that followed. Yeah. So when the victims are saying uh, that the race was used in a way in which to uh, abuse them as part of the physical abuse, and when the perpetrators are saying they felt those girls were had it coming to them, deserved what they got because they were less than as according to their cultural beliefs. And I'm not saying my cultural beliefs or the, anyone who looks like me that I know, mate, but their interpretation of their cultural beliefs or their religious beliefs, these are racially motivated crimes. It gets worse because then you have a, a tier of public sector officials, uh, poli from police officers to social workers, council officers, who are, I describe them as a li fake liberal metropolitan elite is what I call them, mate who look upon these white working class girls and they see the white working class as also beneath them. So there's, uh, there's another racial dynamic where the white middle classes who are in the key sort of positions in the public sector see the white working class hold them in contempt. You know, so they're, so they're getting it from two angles. Yeah. That, that's a great point because I did a little keyword search after i don't know you know the, the the latest round of news surrounding shamima Begum, the british citizen currently in a syrian camp who had left to join the islamic state uh, that's a whole different kettle of fish but a lot of labor politicians were using the word that she'd been groomed publicly and kind of advocating on her behalf which whatever your opinion is fine but that's the first time any of them had ever used the word groomed in any context so, context so they accept whatsoever. they accept the concept of grooming then don't they they accept the concept of grooming so what they only accept the concept of grooming when it suits a, a demographic where they can align themselves with the victim yeah it's wrong so, I mean, isn't it you know it's, well, it's that selective way of looking at something it's, it's grooming when it suits me but the rest of the time it isn't yeah and i don't know if you've seen this very trendy like you say kind of like a middle class upper class way of redefining racism and it's predominantly white people i've yeah. noticed that do this they'll say that it's racism is is more than just prejudice based on skin, skin color it's you know prejudice plus power i think they'll say so when i point out the fact that these uh, grooming gang victims or survivors were vulnerable individuals who were completely powerless who were preyed upon by much powerful more powerful people uh i ask if that'll fit the definition for some reason it still doesn't seem to fit their def definition of racism and is this one of the reasons perhaps that this has been swept under the carpet because it's an uncomfortable truth that pulls down a lot of people's political worldviews in in the hierarchy of racism in my experience of 25 years of working in this field in across this country mate at the bottom the most oppressed are the white working class in my opinion so that's, I mean, in that's my a massively, not my opinion, in my experience. Yeah. And that'd be a massively controversial opinion, I, I imagine, to many. But I, I suppose we, I mean, I, I'm aware of this. I, I'm, I'm white and I'm working class. I would not 
describe myself. I mean, I've been lucky and fortunate, but I'm often described as privileged and it kind of rubs me up the wrong way uh, for a lot of reasons. But I, I mean, I suppose it's a case if you look at metrics and you can see sort of how academia, academia yeah, is failing. Look at working class boys and academic achievement. Yeah, look at all of that sort of stuff. You see, you, you see, and you, you know, you, you're working class in the same way I, I was, I am working class. And we got out of what we got out of, not because of the discrimination we faced, but by working harder. And, and, and that work ethic, mate, you just, you've just got to accept it. Life isn't fair for a lot of us. And the way we, we overcome the injustices that we face isn't by complaining, is by accepting them for what they are and, and overcoming them the best way we can. And unfortunately, in the context of the hierarchy of race, a white working class, because they are ignored in terms of resources, in terms of racial inequality, in terms of inequality, yeah? But it, it's perpetuated. And it's, mm. you know, it's it gets worse and worse as each generation goes by. Would you say class is still the biggest divide in the UK over perhaps race? I think if you have the... If you're willing to get beyond your own, uh, for, for many of us, get beyond race, because it's race and race and race is always what's presented as the issue. If you if you can look at it beyond that, and if you can get beyond that, then yeah, I absolutely think it's class. I, I look at the working class Asian lads in the area I grew up who are standing on street corners peddling drugs or, you know, up to no good. And I look at the white working class lads I know on places like Holzer State or Limeside. They're the same, mate. You know, you, you look at the issues they've got in their lives, what's going on, it's the same. It's a great point. Raja, this has been fascinating. And unfortunately for me, this has flown by because I could have asked you a million more questions. So I'd really appreciate it if at some point in the future you'd be able to come back on and, and speak to us about this more. So much more we can get into. Absolutely, mate. Whenever you want. We didn't even talk about any of the things that we thought. But it's, mate, you know, I'm, I'm happy to share with you. Happy to come on whenever you want because... We've got to get past this. No, we've got to get past this, and we've get, got to get to a point where all of our children are safe, and and hold these politicians to account. And and if we don't do that, I don't know where we're going, mate. I really don't know where we're going. If we can't keep our children safe. Then what sort of society are we? It's a great point to finish on, Raja. Where can people find more about you, more of your work? The best place is the uh, YouTube uh, channel, mate. Recusant Nine is is what it's on. And also I've got a, a blog of sorts, Red Wall and the Rabble, it's called. They they abused us by calling us Rabble, the, the Labour lot. So we just took the name and uh, added it to the Red Wall sort of you know, parliamentary stuff and said Red Wall and the Rabble. That's great. Yeah, take, reclaiming it. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for having me on, mate. Speak soon. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye now.